We've got a few um, readings this morning. So they're not one, not two, but three. So here we go. Psalm 2 is the first one. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son today, and I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's our first reading. Our second one is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So that's the second one. And the last one is from Matthew chapter 16, going from verse 21 through to 17, verse 13. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. 
There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Well, hello. I guess if you're watching this, then it means I was not sufficiently symptom-free to be able to be with you in person. Uh, I've had COVID this past week. I was hoping to be well enough to be with you again on Sunday, but it seems that uh, I need to keep my germs to myself whilst uh, hoping to share God's word uh, via video. Apologies for this less than ideal way of doing things, uh, but I hope that you can still switch on and tune in and listen to God's word and think through its implications for our lives. Have out a pray and ask God to help us to do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please help us now as we consider its significance for our lives. Please uh, help us to take it to heart and to live the way that you call us to. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are you winning? Are you winning? It's a, uh, a phrase, I, a question I often ask people, a kind of shorthand way of saying, how are you going? Are you, uh, are you getting on top of things or are things getting on top of you? Are, are you succeeding at life? Uh, I wonder how you'd answer that question today. Uh, am, am I winning, succeeding? Have I got it together? Uh, what can I do to, to get it together? Am I a winner or a loser? Well, we all want to win, right? Um, and not just the those of us who are particularly competitive. Uh, we all want to sense that we're we're on the right side. We're we're doing life well. We're we're coming out on top. Now, this passage before us this uh, today from Matthew's Gospel, it, it gives us well in a way God's answer to the question of winning or losing. Uh, God's answer is Jesus. He is the winner. Uh, and yet perhaps not in the, in the ways that we and certainly not in the ways that our world thinks. Uh, in fact, God turns winning and losing on its head. And he shows us how through Jesus, we find the, the upside down way to be a winner, which ironically comes through losing. 
Now, if you're lost or confused, don't stress. Let's dive into this passage and hopefully we'll see what I'm saying. Hopefully will become clear. Uh, now, the end of last week, uh, last, last week's passage in chapter, the first half of chapter 16, we arrived at what is something of a high point in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. Peter has worked out the answer to the all-important question of Jesus' identity. Uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter declares in chapter 16, verse 16, he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, friends, don't let the the magnitude of this declaration be lost on you. Uh, For those of us who are familiar with this, it can can kind of wash over us and we say, Yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. Yep, cool. But consider what, what that means. I mean, in the world of Jesus' day, Uh, where people drew various conclusions about him. Some saw him as uh, a prophet, uh, John the Baptist, Elijah. Um, Others rejected him as a madman or a heretic. And in our own day, people see Jesus in various ways as a good teacher, as a model of morality, or maybe as an irrelevant figure of ancient history. But Peter, by God's gracious revelation, realizes and declares you are the messiah you're the king you're you're the uniquely supreme ruler and savior of the world you are the son of the living god the the living god over this world who created this world has entered into this world by sending his son jesus the messiah he's the one Uh, This is a high point in Matthew's gospel. Peter says, you're the one. You are the ultimate winner. And he is. But with what comes next, Jesus, he turns things upside down. Look at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and and be crowned king over the world and usher in the kingdom of God in all its splendor. No, hang on a second. doesn't say that, does it? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The Messiah, the Son of the living God, must suffer be rejected, and be killed. Now, this doesn't seem to kind of fit the the winning formula. And and Peter's quick to set Jesus straight. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. You've got to say it's a bold move of Peter to rebuke the person that he's just identified as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But then he, well, he obviously doesn't want his Lord to, to suffer and be killed. And he, and he just can't see how that could be part of the plan of being king. Jesus' response shows that however well-meaning Peter may have been, he is way off the mark. Verse 23, Jesus turned to and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
I don't reckon it, it gets much worse for a follower of Jesus than to be called Satan by Jesus. But this really shows how, well, how seriously and dangerously wrong Peter is. I mean, Jesus has just said what he must do. And Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Peter attempts to to deviate Jesus from the the very core of his mission in this world. Peter does, well, he does the same thing that that Satan did when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He he, tempting him to, to be a different kind of son of God, one who uses his power to provide for himself and tempted him to to seek a shortcut to glory by bowing down to him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, says Jesus. And, and I reckon that would have stung Peter. But notice what Jesus says is the problem. He says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Uh, human concerns, well, they seek out a winner. They want a, a Messiah who's in charge, who, who wins, not one who suffers and is killed. And look, I reckon things haven't changed much in, in our day. Um, some forms of, of so-called Christianity focus on, well, merely human concerns of success, of, of victory in this world, of, or maybe of acceptance and affirmation by this world, as if that's what Jesus came to give us. But the concerns of God are bigger than merely human concerns. Yes, Jesus will win ultimately on the third day. He will be raised to life. But the path to glory will lead, must lead through suffering. Do you see here the the centrality of Jesus' death, of his suffering and his death? I mean, his death wasn't just kind of well, geez, things got out of hand, but, but thankfully God salvaged the situation with his resurrection. No, notice the, the little word must. He must go and suffer many things. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This was Jesus speaking before it happened. This was the path that was ahead of him, that he, as the Messiah, the ultimate winner, must take. And here's the upside down irony for us. Uh, As for Jesus, so too for those who would follow him. Look at verse 24. But Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Here's the the irony of winning and losing in life. If you want to hang on to your life, if you want to be in control of your life, live your life your own way, pursue your own success, be, be the winning captain of your own destiny, then Jesus says you will lose your life. To hang on to your life as your own is to reject Jesus as your rightful Lord and Saviour. But Jesus says, whoever loses their life for him will find it. What is it to lose your life for Jesus? Well, it doesn't necessarily mean being put to death for Jesus, losing your life in that sense, although it it could include that. 
And obviously for many of Jesus' followers, it has included that. But it means being his disciple, his follower. It's about not hanging on to my life as my own for me to direct and control, but, but to hand over control to Jesus. Jesus says it's about denying yourself, saying no to self and, and self-rule and taking up your cross. The cross is, a, is an image of, of death, of dying to self and, and following Jesus, allowing him to, to shape our life, to shape our values, our desires, our behaviors, our, our words, our thoughts, our actions. To be his disciple is to follow him. And if we lose our life in this sense, then, then we will find true life as a gift from him, from him who suffered and died for us, to save us. Uh, we find life now as we seek to live the way that God designed us to live. We, we discover it's actually the best way to live life now. But ultimately, we find life eternally beyond this world through the gift of salvation that Jesus gives to those who trust and follow him. Jesus is the ultimate winner and ultimately he shares that victory with those who give up their lives to follow him. Jesus turns things upside down. And man, what a rollercoaster ride Peter was on. I mean, he, he realizes Jesus is the Messiah. But then, hang on, he's the Messiah who, who will suffer and be killed. But then... What comes next? Well, lest Peter thinks, and in turn, lest we think that we've somehow got it wrong with Jesus, what, what comes next shows us abundantly clearly how in Jesus we have the ultimate winner. If Peter was struggling to get his head around things, what, what happens next takes things to a whole nother level. Look at uh, chapter 17, verse 1. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, I've, uh, I've spent some time on high mountains recently. Uh, James and I had a great hike in some highland areas of New Zealand. And I've got to say, there is something special about being on a high mountain. But, well, that's really the extent of the relevance of this connection. Um, it's really just a gratuitous opportunity to show a hiking video. But there you are. Pretty amazing, hey? But in the Bible, well, significant things happen on high mountains. I mean, think about it. God met with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Uh, Elijah encountered God on Mount Sinai, 1 Kings 19. And, and here in Matthew 17, something extraordinary happened on this high mountain. Verse 2 says, There he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Jesus' glory was, was manifested in brilliant brightness. The disciples had a, had a glimpse of the all-surpassing glory of Jesus, the Son of the living God. Then verse 3 says, Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
I love Peter's can-do attitude here. I mean, he's keen and, and he obviously thinks, well, this is more like the way things should go. I mean, for the Messiah, the son of the living God, it's, it's good for us to be here. Hey, I, I can put up some shelters, Jesus. But God has a lesson to teach Peter. So verse 5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. God speaks and and he declares who Jesus is. Now this is a, a declaration that's almost identical uh, with, with what God declared about Jesus at his baptism. You might remember from uh, Matthew chapter 3, uh, it says in Matthew 3.16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up from the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, this declaration of both baptism and transfiguration pulls together two great Old Testament expectations. Firstly, the, the coming of the Messiah, the, the King, the Son of God, the, the one spoken of in Psalm 2, and, and the coming of the suffering servant of the Lord, in whom God delights, as it says in uh, Isaiah 42, verse 1. And here at the Transfiguration, God says again, Jesus is both King and and suffering servant. He is the Messiah who must suffer and be killed and rise on the third day. But notice the voice from heaven adds something here at the transfiguration. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. He's the one. Listen to him. The disciples at this sound of this voice are understandably terrified. Verse 6 says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, what's the point of the transfiguration? What does it teach us? Why are Moses and Elijah there? Some commentators say, well, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And, and so this shows that Jesus is, is greater than the law and the prophets. God's voice says, listen to him, the one who's greater than the law and the prophets. And look, that's true. Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But I'm not sure that that's the, the thrust of this account. Because the question that the disciples come away asking is about succession, about someone coming before someone else, someone coming after someone else. So verse 10, the disciples asked him, why then do the disciples of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes uh, and, the, and will restore all things. Jesus here is referring to the prophecy of um, Malachi chapter 4, the, the last chapter in the Old Testament, which looks forward to the coming of Elijah before the Lord comes. There will be a great successor to Elijah. Similarly, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 uh, prophesies the, the coming of a great prophet like Moses. 
So Moses and Elijah, they're, yeah, they're both towering figures of the Old Testament, but they both look ahead to one who will succeed them. And the voice from heaven says, Jesus is the one. He is the great one like Moses. He, he is the one after Elijah. He's the one. He's the king. He's the son of God. But his path is that of the suffering servant. So listen to him. The transfiguration reassures the disciples and, and us that in the face of the, the upside down way of Jesus' mission, which will take him to the cross, and the upside down way of Christian discipleship, which calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, in the face of that, Jesus still truly is the gloriously brilliant, right-side-up Lord of all. He's the one. He is the fulfillment of God's grand plan for this world. Maybe sometimes, maybe even often, as a Christian, you, you feel like you're on the losing side. And the world and the, the culture around us is increasingly hostile to Christianity, uh, perhaps the, the pressure is on for you at, at work or at school or in conversations with family and friends. and You're made to feel like you're a loser. I want to say be assured you're actually on the winning side. Jesus is the one. Yes, he's the one who suffered and died to save us. But he's the one who was gloriously raised to life as the Lord of all. The transfiguration is a a profound revelation and reassurance for Peter and the disciples, and also it should be for us. God says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. So how will we respond to this part of God's word? Jesus tells us that the way to be a winner is to lose your life for him. It's to surrender the idea that, that we control our own life. Now that's a simple concept in some ways, and I'm sure it's a familiar idea to those who are followers of Jesus, but it's a profound and far-reaching and, and liberating reality of life day to day that impacts our lives day to day in, in every facet of life, in, from how we relate to our family to how we conduct ourselves at work, to, to what we think about, what we dream about, what we value. It's very easy for us to, to just kind of fall into the rut of pursuing our own comfort, our own ease, our own security and success and popularity and wealth. But Jesus says, deny self. Die to self-rule and follow him because he's the one to listen to. Now, doing that won't make us winners in the eyes of this world. In fact, it may do the opposite. As the world hated Jesus, it will hate those who follow him and listen to him. And I think we're increasingly seeing that. I mean, the, the moves to not merely sideline Christianity, but to, to silence it or oppose it are increasing. Political opposition to Christianity is growing, which is concerning but it shouldn't be surprising, not if we see that we're, we're following the one who suffered and was rejected and was killed. But ultimately, we, we needn't worry if the world treats us like losers. 
because we're following and listening to the one who is actually the ultimate winner, the one who was raised to life again and who in the end will come in his father's glory with his angels to bring judgment. So by way of implication, do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Now, perhaps some of you, if you're honest, will say no. If that's you, if, if honestly you're keen to hang on to your life for yourself, well, I've got to warn you that you're, you're turning your back on the one who died to save us and you're setting yourself on the path towards destruction. Can I appeal to you to look again at who Jesus is? He's the one. He's the saviour and the king, the glorious son of the living God. Following him, trusting him, that is the key to life, both now and forever. For those of us who, who do want to, to be Jesus' disciples, let's hear afresh the, the call of our Lord to deny ourselves, to, to, to let go of living for self and, and to live instead for him. Let's hear the call to, to take up our cross, to accept that the, the journey of this life will involve hardship and sacrifice as we follow the Lord who suffered and died. And let's set our hearts, our minds, our wills on following him, looking to him, listening to him. What will it mean for you to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus? Let's pray and ask God to, to strengthen us as we seek to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your Son, our Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for calling us to yourself, calling us to be disciples of Jesus. We pray and ask that you would strengthen us to deny ourselves, to let go of self-rule, to take up our cross as we follow you, our Lord. Please give us patience, give us humility, give us strength, give us perspective that sees that the coming glory, even as we may suffer now. And please help us not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who died for us and was raised again. And we pray in his name. Amen.